The Word of God from 1 Peter chapter 3 and the verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ." So far, the reading of God's word, please be seated. Apologetics. Let's begin, of course, with a definition. Apologetics is a ministry of the word that aims to defend the Christian faith and to destroy unbelief. Apologetics is a ministry of the word of God which aims to defend our Christian faith and to destroy all unbelief. According to this passage, it is the responsibility of every Christian to engage in this ministry. So come, let's consider some of the basics together, as they are so clearly set forth in these verses. The first thing we can consider together is this, the apologist's expectation. The apologist's expectation. As those who believe, the Word of God, we as Christians have most of the answers to most of life's questions. One might think, therefore, that the confused world would appreciate us very much, but you know that it does not. It is just as our Savior promised, ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. That pretty much sums up what is the apologist's expectation in this world. Peter, Peter himself had seen his master's words proven in his own lifetime, and in writing he obviously wanted to help his friends to brace themselves for the hardship, for the hatred that they would experience under the sun. It's why he wrote this epistle to help them, to help the saints suffer well as they made pilgrimage through this world. Now, the epistle itself, as you know, is filled with examples of things that just have to be endured, that just have to be born in faith. But without covering the whole epistle or doing a survey, just notice some of the words that we heard read, like harm in verse 13. Suffer, afraid, terror, trouble in verse 14. Then, of course, in verse 16, we hear of those who speak evil of Christians and falsely accuse them. This, my friends, is our assigned expectation. As Christians who live and who witness in a decidedly anti-Christ culture, it is our expectation. Now that having been said, the theme of this conference is not really about engaging the world, because the main topic at hand Textual criticism, the world could not care less. This is a topic 
that is only really of interest to those who are in the church or who were once in the church and are no longer. So some might think that the things Peter writes up here with evil speaking and false accusation, they wouldn't apply, but sadly they do. They do. And if you don't believe me, go ahead and try an experiment when you get back home to your churches. Next Sunday, here's the experiment. Hold up the Bible and make an announcement and say, hey, I believe that every paragraph and every sentence and every word and every syllable, every jot, every tittle in this book is inspired of God and therefore infallible. You make that declaration, you announce that conviction, and the unhappy expectation that we just read about here in Peter's epistle, it will probably become your experience. People will call you names, like traditionalist, obscurantist, fundamentalist. Some will speak evil of you. Some will falsely accuse you, even of sin. They'll accuse you of being dangerous or divisive. Some will just mock you and mock you to scorn. And that doesn't feel good. But I want to tell you tonight, it is good. Inherently so, because the Bible says that's the apologist's expectation. Keep that in mind, friends, as you seek to defend your faith. Because sometimes the accusations and the attacks that come against us can cause us to lose sight of what's most important. And I'll tell you right now, it's not winning debates. And it's not even changing people's minds. What's most important is honoring God. That's the second thing I'd like to highlight from these verses. We'll call it the apologist's priority. I defined apologetics in the introduction as defending faith, destroying unbelief, and that is indeed the practice. Practically speaking, that's the practice of apologetics. We do need to give an answer to those who make inquiry, but do not think of this ministry of apologetics as some kind of intellectual game or philosophical abstraction. The work of apologetics, properly speaking, is inherently religious and spiritual in nature. That's why verse 15 begins with this command, and it is a command. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's our first calling. That's our first priority. As apologists, it is our calling, our priority, and it is, first and foremost, a matter of the heart. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now, one who is theologically trained, might wonder, well, how how does that happen? God is already perfectly sanctified in his own transcendent glory and being and holiness and perfection. So what is this calling that we have to sanctify the Lord God? And I would suggest that it means two things, at least. As you seek to defend your faith, make sure that two things are always true. First, God is more real to me than anything else. And secondly, Scripture is more true to me than anything else. And when I use that phrase to me, I'm not talking about any kind of subjective, postmodern nonsense. 
Because, listen, objectively speaking, God is more real than anything else. And objectively speaking, Scripture is more true than anything else. But here's the caution and the need for the sanctification. We can sometimes lose sight of that as our opponents are always seeking to introduce something else as ultimate or something else as the final arbiter of truth. And for some, you know, it's going to be evidence. For others, it'll be experience. For some, it'll be consensus, majority. Yet for others, it will be logical or methodological consistency. All of which things are fine in and of themselves, don't hear me wrong. But none of which things, and here I want you to hear me well, none of which things are in any way ultimate. For the believer, there is nothing more ultimate than God and Scripture. It's just what you call faith. And we must never, not even for a moment, and not even for the sake of argumentation, yield that to our opponent. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts so that he ever remains the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega of your every apologetic endeavor. That's the calling here. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And it's especially important to remember in light of that expectation we already considered. Think of the context here. Historically speaking, think about the generation to whom Peter was first writing. Their biggest worries in life, their biggest concerns, their biggest fears had nothing to do with losing debates or getting negative book reviews or being mocked on YouTube. They were living in the days of the Caesars with sick perverts like Nero, feeding Christians to the dogs as sport, and lighting them aflame to illuminate his gardens. He even made a circus of it so that everybody could watch the Christians die. But what did these people actually see as they watched our fathers face the lions? They saw hope. Something of which the world knows nothing. They saw hope. And that's a much neglected aspect of apologetics. We like tools. We like to be equipped. Hope. It's mentioned here in the verses, so I think it deserves some attention. Let's move to it. The apologist's witness. And part of that witness, yes, is giving good answers. As people ask questions about our faith. It's essential to our witness in this world. But notice from the verses how or where or in what kind of a circumstance our witness actually begins. Looking again at verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear to every man that asketh you. According to this verse, having an effective apologetic ministry begins simply enough with being a normal Christian. Ordinary, faithful Christian living. Living, maintaining that kind of a lifestyle that causes someone to ask, Hey man, what's with you? Why are you so different? What is it that makes you tick? And it should make perfect sense, again, in light of the historical context here. I mean, imagine living back in this day. 
worshiping God, serving Christ, keeping his Ten Commandments, and then what? Getting arrested for that by some soldiers. Sitting there in chains, get a good beating every once in a while, waiting for your turn to be sent out into the Colosseum. Imagine it, and then think of this, as all of your fellow captors begin to melt, and to panic, and to plead, and to beg for mercy, you and your witness is different. You have so sanctified the Lord God in your heart that a calm and meek and reverent quietness just settles upon your soul, being evident to all. It's the assumption here. And more, the assumption here is that your witness would lead someone to ask, how is it that you're not troubled? How is it that you're not afraid? How is it that you're not filled with terror? And we know the answer. This is just what happens to our people. It's happened many times in history. In fact, it's all recorded in Scripture, and that with a purpose. Romans 15, verse 4. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. possible response. Well, that certainly sounds nice. I'm glad you have that. I'd like to have that, I guess, but how do you know these scriptures are true? How do you know they are trustworthy? That, of course, is the aim of this theological conference. And while I trust we will learn many things about the integrity of Holy Scripture, and also how best to defend it, my chief hope tonight brothers and sisters, is this. That we would all leave here with such a strong and settled and unshakable confidence in the Word of God that it would cause others to take notice and ask, why is your confidence so unshakable? Because then, according to this passage, we'll have the opportunity to do what we are here called to do. Which, of course, is this. Give an answer. Give an answer. Last point for the devotion. The apologist's duty. According to verse 15, our duty consists in two parts. The first being this readiness. We read, be ready always. And it assumes, does it not? This kind of readiness. It assumes that we have first prepared ourselves for this good work. And this, at least in my limited experience, is something relatively few actually do. Not only with regard to apologetics in general, but especially when it comes to matters concerning textual criticism. And that comment, by the way, cuts both ways. I see a lack of preparedness on both sides of the debate oftentimes. Now, as for our opponents, they're still making use of talking points from decades ago, 40, 50 years ago, when text types were still... The most important thing, and when the CBGM was nothing but a dream in the back of Mink's mind. They also make continued use of all the anecdotes we've heard a billion times, Erasmus and his rush to print, his rash wager. Most of our opponents really need to catch up to the current state of the debate. Unless we all start patting ourselves on the back too quickly. I do think that many in our camp are equally out of date and unprepared. 
Part of it is due to the age in which we live. Everybody wants to find those easy bullet points, copy and paste on some guy's blog so they can take it into the debate and win. People may want that, but what we actually need is this, to do the requisite reading. Of course, in Scripture, know the Word of God, inside and out, memorized, know the Word of God. But as apologists, we also have to do the requisite reading in terms of scholarship. We need to read Owen, and Turretin, and Dabney, and Burgon, and Hills, and Letus, and also the newer volumes that are being published today. We need to do the requisite reading. And not just guys on our side. We also have to read what the opponents are saying. If you want to be an effective apologist, you need to listen very carefully to what the opponents are saying and writing. You need to discover their assumptions. You need to learn their arguments. You need to anticipate their objections so that, again, we can be ready, prepared, always. It's our first duty, first duty of an apologist, be ready. The second, of course, is what we read, give an answer, give an answer. And, of course, in an apologetics conference, you're probably seeking some answer to what kind of an answer. When it comes to what kind of an answer we ought to give, there are different options, because there are different models of apologetics. But there's not really more than three main ones. So here's a quick survey and also a recommendation to close. Apologetic model number one. There are those who like to give evidential answers more than anything else. An unrelated example, if you're debating the age of the earth, they're going to point you to rocks and to fossils as their apologetic. That's the evidentialist model. If you're debating textual criticism, they will point you to manuscripts and papyri. But there's a problem with the evidentialist model, and it's this. Technically speaking, there is no such thing as bare evidence. There's no such thing. Anyone staying in the Dells this weekend has ready proof at hand. Take one of those boat rides, look at all the beautiful rock structures, and tell me, what do you see? Proof of millions and millions of years, or proof of a global flood. Same evidence, opposite conclusions, because evidence requires interpretation. That's why the evidentialist model of apologetics is insufficient in and of itself. Model number two. Many prefer rather to give more philosophical answers. This is called the classical model of apologetics, and it relies more on abstract truths like logic and causality and the like. But there's also an inherent and inescapable problem with that model, and it's simply this, sin. More specifically, the noetic effects of sin. The Bible clearly teaches that sin sometimes so darkens the mind of man that he loses the ability to think rationally. God has given some even over to a reprobate mind. And that's why the third basic model of apologetics is best, in my opinion, 
and we call it the presuppositional approach. Big word, all it means is this. As we seek to defend our faith, we simply assume the self-existence of God, and we simply assume the self-authenticating authority of the Word of God. Those are our assumptions. Now, our opponents hate this approach, because what it means, if you're making that assumption, it also means this. We do not grant any of their unbelieving assumptions for even a second. We simply allow the claims of Jesus Christ to stand on their own self-attesting authority. Now, our opponents hate that because it's inescapably theological in nature, and they'll also complain that it involves circular reasoning. But here's what you need to know about that. Everyone reasons in a circle, ultimately speaking, because everyone has what we call first principles or alternate truths. They usually begin there, and they usually end up there at the close. Now, our ultimate truth as Christians, our first principle as Christians is this. The self-attesting claims of Christ revealed in the Word of God and Scripture alone. So that's where we begin. That's where we end. And there's no need to apologize for it. Because this is what it means, brothers and sisters, to have so sanctified the Lord God in your hearts that God becomes more real to us than anything else and Scripture becomes more true to us than anything else. Amen.